0: So the story of Nehemiah has proven itself to be quite a page-turner around a 1,000 years before Christ. David leads Israel into an unparalleled period of prosperity and then Solomon really takes this along to a further level, builds a glorious temple for Yahweh in 986 BC and the presence of the living God is its glory. The temple stands for 400 years and is the spiritual heart of the people of Israel. In 722 BC, the ten northern kingdoms are defeated by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. 620 BC, Jeremiah is called by God as a teenager to preach judgment on the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah. 605 BC, the Babylonians begin the first deportation of the exiles. Among them are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're in the first group. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar finishes off the job, destroys Jerusalem and the temple. The people are taken into exile. The glory of God has left the temple and God's people are in judgment. 536 BC, the temple is rebuilt under Zerubbabel. 453 BC, about 100 years later, Ezra reinvigorates the people's faith and spirituality. And then 440 BC, Nehemiah hears about the terrible state of affairs in Jerusalem. He's moved by the things that move the heart of God. He fasts, he prays, he asks the big question of his boss, the king, and he gets the go-ahead to rebuild. He leaves the fourth highest paid job in Jerusalem persia and goes back to his homeland the city that he's only dreamt of seeing but he finally sees it with his own eyes he scouts out the task at night of rebuilding he casts a vision to the people he rallies a team and they start rebuilding and the wall is halfway up in height and the people run into what can only be described as predictable resistance Predictable resistance. Few things in life go through without a hitch. They may for a time, but there is this problem in human life. It starts with S and rhymes with in. Sin ruins things. Amen? Sin ruins everything. Sin causes entropy. Sin breaks and sin kills Sin ensures that when we're doing something good, there's always pushback. If it's pitch black darkness and you take some fuel and and heat and oxygen, you create a fire, suddenly there's light, and the darkness is pushed back, and the light is there with the fire, and uh then the fire starts to maybe go out. You you, you lose some fuel, some heat some oxygen, and as the light goes down, what does the darkness do? It it, it comes straight back in. It's like wherever there is light, there is darkness pushing back against the light. That's what sin is like in the world. Good is light, but the dark is always trying to push back, isn't it? The dark is pushing back to turn the light out. Nehemiah said in chapter 2.18 let us rebuild, and the people said yes. So they started doing what the Bible calls a good work. He said, let's rebuild this wall, and the text says they started this good work, and immediately the next verse, chapter 2.18, tells us, but when Sanballat the Horonite to buy the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. Step out to do something good, something worthwhile, something life-changing, life-giving, and there will be pushback, like the darkness, to the light. You can count on it. The reason we know it's going to happen is because the world is broken. 1 John says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world, the world, the anti-God bias of sin in this world is something to be overcome. Jesus said it in John 16, verse 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As Christians, we live in a world that wants to overcome us. In every way, the world is thwarting the good that the Spirit of God is doing in our lives and in this world So today we're going to consider what's required in resisting predictable resistance. Resisting the resistance that comes towards that which God is doing, that is that new thing. Expect pushback. Expect it. Prepare for it. Ready yourself for it. If you're moving into God's new thing in your life, expect pushback. And we find it here in the first verse of uh, chapter 4. who was at his side, said, what are they building? What they are building, even a fox climbing upon it would break down their wall of stones. This is, a, I think, the third time that we're told that Sanballat is angry. Anger is the will to harm. The will to harm. Sanballat and Tobiah are from nations who were originally defeated when the people of Israel took the Promised Land. Their part of a grudge that's 500 years in the making. Sanballat and Tobiah do not want Israel back in Jerusalem, and they're pushing back on Nehemiah's good work. They're pushing back at Yahweh's new thing. God is doing a new thing here, yet there's still this pushback. There's this opposition. And what's interesting, if you look at the stories, the pushback begins as words. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? Who do you think is behind these mocking words? Jesus said this about Satan in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him when he lies He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In this insight, into this narrative, it looks very much like the enemy of our souls is at work, doesn't it? This is the aroma of the evil one. Think about the story of the Bible. The evil one lied to Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? It twisted the words. At the very beginning, he's a liar, just like Jesus said. He lied to Jesus in the wilderness, do you remember? Worship me and I'll give you everything, as though he had everything to give. He's a liar, but he's really a murderer. It started with a lie to Eve, then Cain murdered his brother Abel. Can they bring these stones back to life? They mock. Do you see the evil one lacing the mocking against Nehemiah, with mocking against God. It's like the evil one is saying, can he reverse death? Can these stones be brought back to life? Can God reverse the curse? Can God make the dead come to life? Well, he does. In Christ, one day, Never underestimate the power of words to undermine the good work of God on this earth. Is that a fair thing to say? Never underestimate the power of words, the way the evil one will use words to push back against the good that God is doing. James tells us that the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Can I encourage you, if, if God is going to do something worthwhile amongst us as a church, and we believe he is, we believe God is going to do something really significant. We believe we're going to see people testifying to new life in Christ, new creation. We're going to see baptisms. We're going to see a hundred kids out on a stage. Amen? That's not an exaggeration. We will. We will see a hundred kids doing memory verses on a stage, and there will be a pushback. We can rely on it coming. We can count on it. And you know how it's going to come? It's going to come with words. It's going to come with words in our community because it's the way the evil one brings disunity. It's the way he pushes back. He undermines with words. He breeds distrust. It's predictable resistance. We will have to deal with it. We will have to deal with the words that come from the evil one and the problem is he can sort of use anyone who's vulnerable to spread those words. We have to come against that by God's grace. Can I encourage you, if you're going to walk in the freedom that God has for you and I, We have to actually stop believing certain lies, certain words that are untrue and start believing words about our life that are true. Amen? Because this is the way the world, the evil one, the flesh, pushes back against the new thing God is doing in us. They come with lies, come with words that are untrue, that create in us a sense of identity. Resisting predictable resistance means being prepared for that push back and also going to God as a first resort. Verse 4, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, That's a fairly harsh prayer to say straight up. But Nehemiah goes straight to God as a first resort. How many of us go to God as our last resort? He goes straight to God. If you can solve it through natural means, that's where we tend to go rather than supernatural. It shouldn't be like that. Nehemiah goes to God early. Do you ever get in a rhythm in your prayer life where you you come back to pray again and you can't help but say a line like this, Hi God, it's me again. Because when you're talking to God like a friend, like a parent maybe that you call up and say, Hey, mum, just catching you up on what's happened. or, Or maybe it's a spouse or whatever it is for you, a child. We share what's going on and that's the prayer life that Jesus had. Straight to his father. Daddy, Abba, father. He always found time to steal away. Nehemiah receives the pushback of the good thing that God is doing through him and he takes it vertical ASAP. And when we do that, the benefit of going vertical immediately is that it quickly centres us in grace. It orients us to a kingdom perspective. About whatever we're dealing with. And it keeps us accountable for our initial words that respond to that pushback. Have you ever found that when someone comes back against you, you say the wrong thing? Oh, wow, you guys are very honest today. I normally get no nods at all. (laughs) And you make me feel like a horrible person. (laughs) But we do, we say the wrong thing often. But this, when it pushes back, the resistance that's predictable. Nehemiah, I think, encourages us to go that way, quickly. Say, God, I need help. Help me, season my words with salt. Go vertical as a first response. Go to God as a first resort. I think the next thing is probably obvious. You lean forward into the call. You lean forward into the call if you're resisting predictable resistance. Doing something challenging in life will rarely be accomplished by tentativeness to achieve something significant. Um, I don't know how many of you have abseiled off a cliff. Anyone done that? Yeah, lots of us. It doesn't help if you don't sit back off the cliff into the harness. If you're like, I'm not really going to go off the edge, I wonder if I could get down the cliff without going off the edge. <laughs> That's what goes through your mind. You've got to sit back, you know, ah, oh, if I embrace this call. This journey, it suddenly starts to work, anyone being snow skiing, quite a few of us. Try snow skiing off a steep hill without leaning into it and you're going to slide on your backside. I think they're just pictures of what we have to do in life. When you make a decision, you need to actually push into it, to lean into it. Nehemiah has heard from God, he's been moved by the things that move the heart of God And he's decided that he's not going to doubt in the valley what he was told by revelation on the mountaintop. Because that's what we do, isn't it? We get a revelation on the mountaintop, we get into the valley amongst the lantana, we go, did I really hear or see what I saw? He says, no, I'm not going to doubt that. I'm going to lean forward into the call. In other words, put your heart into it. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with what? all their heart pursuing the call that God has given you to do that new thing to be that new person that new creation for a church to do the thing that God's called us to do and be it will involve vulnerability because to lean into a calling means that you can't pull out easily why on earth do you want to not land in the harness on an abseil because you think if I look down and get scared I could pull out but these guys committed when you commit when you lean into the call your weight has been shifted and at that point what happens there's something to be lost that's the sign of commitment There's money to be lost. There's reputation to be lost. There's something to be lost. Something's on the line. There's a relationship to be lost. Nehemiah has left the security of Persia and he's left his comfort zone. When we have stepped out in obedience to that thing that God is calling us to do, we will find that the resistance will come against us But we need to press in. We need to lean into that resistance with all of our heart until the next stage turns up, and that's verse 7 to 12, and that is we give up. So after we lean in with all of our heart, if we look at the story of Nehemiah, he gives up. And let's see what it says, verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, They were very angry. They had will to harm. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. This is the work of the evil one. It starts with words because he's a liar but he's really a murderer. He's wanting to take their life. Anger is the will to harm and they really want to harm. This is serious, verse 12. The Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. What does that mean? They're really afraid. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Sometimes have you found in life that you come to a point, you've given something your whole heart, you've committed, you've leaned in, but you get to a point where you can't go on. There is a mystery about this because you feel like God has asked you to do it and then you come up against this proverbial wall and you say, God, you told me to do it, I've been obedient, I have taken a real hit in doing this. There has been enormous sacrifice and here I am and I have hit a wall. This is profoundly confusing. This is so disappointing. I can't go on, I don't have the resources. You've thrown this curveball or you've allowed it to come my way and I've been committed and I'm at a point where all I can say is I give up. I think this is the natural outcome of putting your whole heart into something and typically you get worn out. Anyone had this situation? You, you, you go with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind and then you get burned out. For these guys, the resistance began as words but now... Their lives are on the line. The opposition forces are planning on killing the people of Israel. This is serious. The strength of the labourers is giving out. And we could stop and press pause and we won't for long. But what an interesting discussion to have for the people of God. When Leanne and I first got married, one year in, we went and spent three months in Guatemala and El Salvador, And we were, I was first year college, Bible theological college. And I'd read about different theologies. But to go and meet a church in El Salvador who said they have 250 people, 80% had lost someone to the death squads in El Salvador. And these people believed what's called liberation theology. They believed that Jesus came to start a revolution, that people would take up arms against their oppressors and God would give them the power to overcome the enemy. And us evangelicals come in and we go, no, 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 we're pacifists. We don't, shouldn't be doing that. And in that moment, it, it, it made me realise, gee, until someone comes and til- kills or takes away 80% of the church or 80% get affected, it's hard to really know what you'd do in that situation. So Nehemiah's in this space where there are people coming at the people of God and of course it's different in the Old Testament. I mean, Holy War is going on. But imagine in the New Testament, people are coming at us with weapons to kill. It's a challenging predicament to be in when you want to turn the other cheek, but you also want to protect your family, yes? So let's not any, bring any judgment on those people who make a certain call, but let's coming back, keep coming back to the Word of God and grappling with these challenging questions. They know they're under attack... They fear for their lives and Nehemiah, as God's appointed leader, basically gets them to actually be ready to defend themselves. These people hit a wall. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. So they give up. It's too hard. It's impossible. Can't be done. And a good picture is when you give up, what do you do with your hands? You surrender. You go, I give up. And at that moment when you genuinely say, I can't do this, you know, there's been a lot of bravado in the past, but to get to the point you're on your knees and you say, God, I give up. And you look at your fingers and they give you the cue of what you also have to do. Give up. Yes, like take this issue, this problem. I give up, I surrender, but I'm also giving it up to you, God, because I refuse to believe you didn't tell me to do it. I refuse to believe you're not in this, but I'm surrendering it back. You gave me a burden and I don't understand why I've come to the wall, but it's your thing. It's your new thing that you're doing. So I'm giving up. I'm believing what Second Chronicles says. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. Your battle that God has put you in belongs to the Lord. And then we find when we get to that point where we, we've put everything we have in to this sense of call, We've left our comfort zone and we've run out of our own reserves. We've hit the wall. We give up to God. God does this um, mysterious thing, doesn't he? He, uh, he takes the burden and then he encourages us to keep fighting. Have you found that? I always think of Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're going uphill. They've got one sword between the two of them. And they say, perhaps the Lord will deliver them into our hands, the Philistines. And it says, and then they, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it's like they fight all day. There's this beautiful moment. The battle belongs to the Lord. They sing a little hymn together, maybe. And there's two of them. They've got one sword. And Jonathan says, "Um, are you with me, mate? And he goes, yeah, I'll come. And they've got one sword. And then they fight all day. And I always think, wow, why didn't you just send angels, Lord? But it's not God's way, is it? He says to us, give me the burden back and then I'll empower you with strength to keep fighting, though it's my battle, not yours. And the key there is the outcome has been handed over because it's God's. It's not about my identity. My identity myself is not in the outcome. My identity is in being a child of the living God and being obedient. Amen? At that point... God, it's your thing. What if they don't settle the, the units? What if the bank says, we won't give you enough money? What if Mario comes back and says, I can't even get the 11 million for the trust fund. I can only get eight. Then will our prayer life will increase. <laughs> what are we going to do? We're going to do exactly the same thing. We'll get on our knees and say, God, it's your development because it's your church. It has been for over 100 years. We'll keep working as hard as we can. But it's yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. Hand over the outcome and then fight the good fight. Verse 13 to 23 tells us that resisting predictable resistance involves fighting the good fight. Verse 13. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. This is a pretty epic part of the Bible, isn't it? Don't you reckon? It's a great part of the story. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. It's God's battle, but we've got a job to do in it. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. It's like a siren. Our God will fight for us, but they're in it together. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. They're committed, aren't they? They're committed. There's work to be done. There's fighting to be done. There's prep to be done. They're alert. They're alert at that time I also said to the people have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day neither I nor my brothers he loves the detail Nehemiah neither I nor my brothers even took a shower we didn't take our clothes off each had his weapon even when he went for water so they're working with trowel in one hand and sword in the other they don't bath they are focused they're alert they are they're at war they've got this good thing to do in God's name but it's God's project and they're going to trust that God will look after them Paul doesn't say to Timothy his protege rest the good rest Timothy does he kick back the good kick back son take it easy the good, take it easy, son. He says, fight the good fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Many years ago, I was at a church, um, and it was a year 2000, and we'd sold the property for $5.1 million. Some of you know some of this story. We'd had a down payment. We were waiting 12 months for them to settle, like we are with the residential tower. And we got to the point where the settlement date came in September 2000. Did anyone remember what happened in September 2000? What? The Olympics. The Olympic Games in Sydney. So it was right at that time we came to settle and uh, we had everyone helping to get everything out of this um, church because we were selling it plus three houses, 5.1 million. Great thing. We were heading off. We didn't know where we were going to go, but we knew God was going to lead us. And uh, we about to settle and they don't, they don't settle because they say, no, no, mean, the contract it said all goods and chattels and you took the big um, pews. So every day we didn't get paid the full $5.1 million. It was many thousands of dollars. So these guys wanted to stall as long as they could. So we went and got the truck again and brought all the pews back in, all the pews. We said, okay, everything's there, cool. Um, then they didn't settle. Why aren't you settling? I said, because the fence, there was a development next to the church and the Calabon 50, 60 metre fence had been stolen the night before the settlement. I said, we can't settle without the fence. Every day that's going, there's pushback. Every day, it's multiple thousands. So we go to the developers next door, say, can you put the fence back? No. So days go by, they won't put a fence in. So one of our guys, John... He goes and buys another fence for four or $5,000 and we put the fence in, in a working bee, and then he's just Nehemiah-esque. He stays there in his van all night guarding the fence. Trowel in one hand, mobile phone in the other. True story, because we did not trust these guys to come and steal the fence again. We had to guard it. And, you know, I watched a bunch of mainly older people, men and women, spend about 18 months of their life, putting their life on on hold to rebuild a factory that we bought and talk about a sense of Nehemiah. Fight the good fight. I guess it's fair to say that Jesus was doing a good work, yes, in his life, death and resurrection. You think about the way he resisted, predictable resistance. He arrives on the scene, immediately Herod attempts to kill the, the children. There's a pushback immediately when the light of the world hits the darkness. Expect pushback. Go to God as a first resort. Do you think Jesus did that? Absolutely. He's constantly doing ministry straight back to the Father, taking everything back to the Father. Put your whole heart into it. Jesus said in John 4, My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven and to finish his work. He was utterly committed to give up. Did Jesus ever give up? Well, he got to the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Can you take this from me? That was his moment? He hit the wall. There are drops of blood. My mate, who's a surgeon, says, "You know what? I saw a guy with blood pressure so high, blood was coming out of his forehead." And he thought, "Wow, that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Your blood pressure could be so high." That's our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, "I'm hit a wall, God." Can't. He says, "I can do it. Keep going." He says, "Not my will, but yours be done." And fight the good fight. You bet. He took the sin of the world, our sin, upon Himself. He went to the cross and all of darkness, all of sin, all of death was defeated by Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again. Hallelujah. He's our our model. He fought the good fight. So there's not a lot of application yet in this message, but I'm just wondering, is God doing anything new in your life? Are you looking at that next step where you know God's leading you into that new thing? Get ready for the pushback. It'll come. Expect it. What are you going to do first resort? Go to God. Go to God as a first resort. Put your whole heart into it. Lean in. It's worth it. There's nothing more worthy of our best efforts than that which would bring glory to God. And when you run out of strength, give up. (laughs) Give up. Give it back to God. Hand the outcome over and fight the good fight. And may we as a church fight the good fight because behold, God is doing a new thing. Amen.